To get the Doctor Who podcast, I reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. In this episode, we review the Fishmen of Venice. I mean the vampires of Venice here at the Doctor Who podcast. Tom and Trevor are in the caravan yet again, and we're going to have a look at this episode. Just what was it all about? What did we think? And, well, let's find out. Trev, it's nice to see you again. <laughs> it's wonderful to be back in the same room again for once. Fantastic. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Uh, I, I was in Manchester last week meeting some uh, quite amazing people, but maybe more about that later. Well, speaking of amazing people, I really must congratulate you on, on the fantastic um, fan reaction episode, episode 13, um, which you did with Laura from the Oodcast. Oh. Fantastic listening. And if any of our listeners haven't uh, downloaded and listened to that one yet, please do. Fantastic stuff. Oh, thank, thank you. Laura's really easy to record with. Um, and yeah, the, the Oodcast, of course, as well, is incredibly good. But hopefully if people have heard uh, episode 13, they may well have listened to the Oodcast as well and might be sharing that opinion. Well recommended. But we're in the here and now, right now. And in this episode, we are going to be reviewing The Vampires of Venice, the slightly misleading title of the latest Doctor episode in the uh, Matt Smith era. So we'll get straight into sharing our thoughts with you very soon. You are smashing. Oh, 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 I've, I've, uh, I've, 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 I've got to go. <laughs> That's a relief. If I burst out of the wrong cake again. That reminds me, there's a girl standing outside in a bikini. Could someone let her in and give her a jumper? Well, I, I think it's my turn this week to be the first cab off the rank to talk about what I think of uh, Vampires of Venice. In, in past weeks, I've sort of sat back and let you and James uh, either sink yourselves or um, lift yourselves up with praise with regards to it. So I think it's my turn to put my colours on the mast and say what I thought of this episode. I'll just qualify my statements to start with by saying that I think Vampires of Venice is one of those episodes in a season that, not through any fault of its own, is just an episode in a season. It's nothing that really stands out. It's nothing that's particularly, uh, what do you call it, uh, flagpole worthy, I suppose. That it's one part of a season that you don't necessarily look back at and go, oh, I fondly remember that episode as compared to maybe other landmark episodes from a season. So that's probably giving you a bit of an idea of where my thoughts on Vampires of Venice are, are leading to. I watched this, and for the first 30 minutes or so, I, I was quite surprised at, at the quite slow pace of it. It just seemed to be meandering along, not really... 
worrying about getting anywhere in particular. It, it did make up for itself the last 15 minutes or so where, you know, the problems had to start being solved and uh, the, the performances seemed to be raised slightly. But I sort of walked away from this episode going, well, okay, that, that was all right. There, there was nothing really in it for the most part that, that really leapt out and grabbed me by the collar and said, notice me. It was just one of those standard, you know, sort of season filler type episodes. Tom. Right. Okay. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I don't think you're entirely correct. I mean, okay, I, I see where you're coming from, but I, I, the, the thing I forgive Vampires in Venice for is that it's following those two uh, Angel episodes, which were absolutely superlative. Um, if this episode had been in season one, um, or actually even in season two, it would stand out really, really well because it is so big. Its pacing is absolutely spot on right until the last five minutes if i'm totally honest um the characters are big the production values are high i really really liked it um, it actually made me jump in a way that i hadn't for a while actually and but mostly with the reveal of the countess as the sea spider shrimp thing um but i i, I see where you're coming from but i don't agree i i really enjoyed this There's, there was a lot there's a lot going on in fairness, it might take a couple of watches to reveal it. It could be, it, but then again, the point could be this is supposed to be family entertainment. Maybe you're supposed to be able to take everything out of it in one go at the first pass. But it does give up a little bit more um, the second time round. I've got to be honest, particularly with the Countess, and particularly if we're looking for uh, layers inside the interactions that are going on. So um, yeah, I, I, I also have a message from James. Um, let me just open up my open up my phone. Uh, so I can get this text message. Uh, yeah, James says, I loved it. It was amazing. It was fantastic. No, sorry. Um, James says, managed to see Vampires in Venice and thought I'd send you a text review. Um, unengaging. Story fairly dull. Very convincing location. Uh, location. Rory and Amy are like Mickey and Rose, but less interesting. Uh, loved the Doctor in a Cake, but another mediocre episode. All the best. <sighs> um. <laughs> Enjoy your holiday, James. Well, I'll see you in a week. Um, I tend to agree with uh, J- James to a certain degree because the character of Rory, for me, I think, has some very interesting potential, but it often dipped into kitchen sink drama too often for my liking. And I don't care what anyone says, not every subject um, under the sun is fit for Doctor Who. There, there are some things that you just don't really need to cover. Sure, you can cover them, but you don't need to. I mean, it, it goes back to my thing with last week about the whole uh, smoochy smoochy scene. <laughs> um, sure, you can do it, but why do you need to do it? Um, and some of the stuff with Rory sort of tipped the balance for me. I, I thought he really realised his potential later in the episode, especially in that fantastic uh, scene where he was fighting against the male yeah. vampire person. That was really, really good. Mm. But all the stuff up till then, um, yeah, it, it just teetered on the edge of... This wet young lad following Matt Smith around, Whoa. asking why did you why did you snog my fiance? And sure, they have to cover it, but do we have to spend forty minutes covering it? I think there's an awful lot of stuff going on in the episode, though. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. The I like the dynamic between Rory and the Doctor because it is competitive, and Rory is a lot more switched on than Mickey, and he's a lot more, and he's no Harry Sullivan. It's got to be said. You know, he's there, he's engaging. He's like, well, I, I am a bit upset. Don't forget, the Doctor just wandered off with his fiance. Plus. Um, Rory has been living with this for the best part of his life, so he's you know, he's been he's, he's learned how to contain well, not best sorry, 
Plus, Rory's been dealing with this for a very, very long time. You know, Amy's been talking about the raggedy doctor for years. And Rory's get, you know, Rory's the guy that's the nurse. He's not quite the doctor. And then suddenly the doctor shows up, whisks his fiancé away. Did you see the look on his face when the guy came up through the cake? It's like, oh, no, not again, not again, not now. I want to talk about that scene later too. But anyway, um, <laughs> Rory for me, and, and I think like James said in his wonderfully worded text message, reminded me too much of Mickey. Especially like there was the scenes at the beginning in the TARDIS when they were travelling to Venice. Um, I, I almost got an Eccleston Mickey feel there. And that, that, that was a bad thing for me. Because the 11th Doctor was very dismissive of Rory. And, and that did remind me of the uh, 9th Doctor Mickey dynamic. See, I got a feeling of, of number two and Jamie there. You know, when, you know when, when, oh, uh, good God. Yes, absolutely. Good yes. God, man. Don't, don't sully the name of one of the most fantastic Doctor <laughs> companion pairings ever by, by comparing Rory and the 11th Doctor to, to Jamie McCrimmon and the second Doctor. Yeah, but look I mean, at that. Look at Jamie was constantly, oh, so you know what you're doing, do you? Oh, right, okay, so, you, so you're this, you're that, oh, yeah. And that was exactly what was going on with Rory as well. The Doctor's giving, it's a, look, it's bigger on the inside than on the outside, and Rory's going, it's just in another dimension. And immediately it's like, you know, there's a, there's a bit of bristling going on, and it's like, okay, okay, we like this. You're basing that bristling on viewings or multiple viewings of the two Doctors, aren't you? No, I, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of the two you Doctors. You are, big, 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 because, the, big, because there is not that level of antagonism with regards to the second Doctor and Jamie in the original series, like back when he was in black and white. It's not there. It's, it's, it's a manufactured bit of stuff for that 1985 story. But we're getting off the point here. Um, it's not. You have, were... you seen, have you seen the first episode of no. Tomb of the Cybermen? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, the stuff that's in Two Doctors that supposedly fleshes out those two people's relationship, um, awful. I mean, hairy-legged Highlander, one meal a day is good enough, young man. You know, oh, just, just go away. But anyway, um, you keep throwing around these phrases like multi-layered and words like complex and rich. I'm not seeing that in Vampires of Venice. There, there, there is nothing complex about this story. And, and, and oh. I think it's disingenuous for you to start applying stuff to this story okay. in, in, in some way to push it up and make it more than it really is. Okay, well, the, the reason I'm saying that is there's lots of development. And there's lots of, um, well, I, I can only use the word richness because it seems to be there. Look at the way that Rory confronts the Doctor about his record with companions. Look at the way that the Doctor reacts when Amy starts putting herself in danger. They always do this. Look at the way that the Countess confronts the Doctor about his track record. You watch the civilization burn and turn to dust. You're going you're to do that to another one. That's complexity. That's a lot of complexity. Mm. Plus, um, you know, note, note the Doctor's reaction to the silence that happens at the very end of the episode. He knows what's going on. He has an inkling about it. That's a very Sylvester McCoy thing in terms of... Um, I'm not a big Sylvester McCoy fan, uh, not because he's not a good actor, but I'm not mad keen on his characterization of the Doctor. I'm not big on that whole devious, I know what's going on type thing. The richness and complexity comes from that. How would you, how would you, do, how do you, how do you live for a thousand years knowing that you've destroyed your own race, that you've got people around you who are constantly putting themselves in danger whilst trying to make amends for it? That first scene in the TARDIS where the Doctor is saying, right, it's really dangerous. This light that I show people is very, very dangerous because it means that it destroys the things that they go on to next time so I'm going to bring you both he's trying to make amends that to me is an insight into a very complex character to me that's one example of some of the incredibly inconsistent writing in this episode I mean all all dues to a Toby Whithouse here who wrote this episode but even the story makes a point of at the beginning Rory's aghast at the companion being put in danger 
but at the end, Rory's doing exactly the same thing. There's that thing you talked to for about Rory being uneasy with the Doctor, almost being afraid of him. But then they, but then they put in that incredibly confident, self-assured joke about I'm getting married in 430 years. To me, that's not a guy who's afraid of this imposing thousand-year-old character standing in front of him. That's a guy who's who's uh, very, very sure of himself. And and to me, that seemed to be inconsistent writing or inconsistent characterization. Um, it, it was just one of the things that really put me very much unease in this episode. And for, for, for me, the unease happened before the credits even rolled. I'm noticing a lot more now when I'm watching these episodes, and, and it really started with the Amy smoochy smoochy scene. I'm always thinking, how would another doctor handle this? And yeah, 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 Matt, yeah, yeah. Matt Smith bursting out of a cake. <laughs> um, to, to me, that seemed, I, I couldn't think of another doctor that would do that. And for me, Four. to a certain degree, that is a failing on the doctor's characterization. But if you can't. Uh. It's a if, new characterization. No, 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 no. Even every new characterization has some hark back to a, a core personality. Okay. Um and, 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 and I would be really interested to hear from our listeners where they think the, the cake bursting thing comes from. That whole scene also ends on, on a really weird edit for my liking too. It it ends in a really weird way before the credits roll. And that really put me at unease mm-hmm. for the whole episode because I couldn't get over the way that scene was structured. I couldn't get over the way that scene ended because it ended on a really, really weird beat, mm-hmm. um, almost a slight pause. And then that was bookended at the end of the story about that scene you talk about where the Doctor said, can you hear that? The way the whole s- soundscape or slight lack of soundscape was built up in that yeah. didn't seem to be done very well. Um, I, I, I think they were trying to push home a point about the silence. Yeah. But to me, I never got that impression. So this, this, this whole episode had me ill at ease from the beginning all the way through to the end. Well, okay, I, 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 I understand definitely what you're saying. Um, maybe, it's the, maybe for me it's the positioning as well. And I say the, the context that I, that I was looking at this in yesterday when I saw it was, as I say, coming in off the back of... Uh, Flesh and Stone, which was just stupendously good. It was, you know, that was a triumphant episode. So whatever followed it was going to have to be markedly different in tone. Um, as I say, my, my only problem with the episode at all was just how quickly it sped up towards the end. And I mean, the last five minutes with the climb up the tower, open up the orb, flick the switch, that, the, the speed of that just annoyed me a little bit but i've got to be honest everything else in it i thought yeah this is good because what you've got you this this story sits absolutely at the end of the beginning so it's, it's number six isn't it yes so it's at the it's at the end of the first half and it's beginning to kick off the the second half so it's got an important job to do it's got to like kind of set the scene of all that's come before introduce a new character and set us up for what comes afterward um i mean i, I like the well, actually, th- thing, something that threw me was the Countess's attitude to the Doctor. It reminded me very much of the way Jabe uh, f- treated uh, the Ninth Doctor uh, on Platform Five. Um, she knew about, she knows about the Time Lords. She knows about, and better than that, she knows about the Doctor, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, also, slight tangent. It was interesting to see how they confronted each other. It was very much like school reunion. I don't know if you got a feeling for that. I did definitely get that impression of it. it- it was a very tree person type of scene for me. It, it it did hark back to the end of the world, especially that scene where they were bouncing questions backwards and forwards to each other. That 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 sort of playfulness, yeah, yeah, that yeah. I think was even echoed in End of World as 
end of the world as well. So, mm. yeah, I do get where you're coming from with that. Yeah, yeah. Seeing one of you for the first time in, say, mirror, the brain doesn't know what to fill the gap with, so leaves it blank. <laughs> Hence, no reflection. Your question? Why can we see your big teeth? <laughs> Self-preservation overrides the mirage. The subconscious perceives the threat and tries to alert the conscious brain. Where's Isabella? My turn. Where are you from? Gallifrey. You should be in a museum <laughs> or in a mausoleum. I also liked that chronologically there was reference to um, the smoochy smoochy scene and, and not a dismissal of it, but a really strong explanation of it. I, and, you know, the, the explanation I think anyone sane got to <laughs> from watching it. Um, but, you know, it's nice to have it in character as well. You know, she just kissed me because I was there. And there we've got Amy. Um, just kissing Rory because he was there and does something heroic. There's a, you know, the more we the more we discover about Amy, the more interesting she becomes. She's she's very strong, but she's also a bit bonkers and quite weird. But then again, that's a woman portraying a character that uh, met someone when she was seven, who she's met like what fourteen years later. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I understand all the reasoning and you know all all the stuff behind why she is the way she is. I, I suppose. Maybe I'm being a bit churlish and childish and saying, well, I don't really want to see that in Doctor Who. Maybe that's the core of my problem. I understand why she tried to snog the Doctor. I, I fully understand that. But that doesn't mean I want to see it in my Doctor Who. I hear what you're saying. There's an interesting thing. I don't know, I don't know how... It, mm. There is an interesting optical illusion that is essentially uh, a picture of a man and a woman kissing. Um, and if you look at it, as if you and I look at it, because we you know we're uh, mature grown men, um, we see a man and a woman kissing. However, if you show it to a child who has no uh, experience of intimacy, all they see is a bunch of dolphins. So I wonder if that's not the same thing going on with this kissing scene. You and I and a lot of people are aware of intimacy and what that can actually, you know, what that can lead to, what that could allude to. But a child watching it with no experience of intimacy just says, oh yeah, okay, fine. I mean, I'm not, you know, I've got, I'm lucky that there's um, uh, a few seven and 10 and 11 year olds who, share, who I share the show with. Uh, or show or viewing the show with, and they did, and they just laughed at it. They had no problem with it at all. The parents were a bit like, "Ooh, what's that?" But the kids. So, what are you trying to say? Are, are you trying to excuse it? Are, are you trying to validate that scene because of that innocence? Or I'm I'm saying I'm, I'm pushing the innocence part of it. And I'm saying there's probably less going on there than some of the Daily Mail readers would like us to think. <laughs> but back to Vampires of Venice, I loved it. Yes, <laughs> I really really liked it. But I, I I got feelings of um, season fourteen and season fifteen. You know, early Tom Baker shows. Uh, from this, I loved the production values. We can't. How can we not be talking about the production values? And I loved the jokes. You know, you've got to be really confident in a show to to be able to push and pull the um the, you know, the, the narrative like that. To have the jokes about the cake and the library card. Did you spot the one about Casanova? Yes, I, I was wondering how far they were going to push the uh, David Tennant reference at all. <laughs> but then, but then they pulled back, and he just said, "Oh, I, I owe him a chicken or something like that, or whatever it was." And I went, "Oh, okay, fair enough. That 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 wasn't too bad, but it, it wasn't as overt as I thought it was going to be." So, yeah, yeah. No, no, that was pretty good. Um, yeah, I, I suppose for me, that may be a little bit of my problem as well. That that the episode didn't know where it wanted to place its bottom, basically. Was it going to be 
a, a suspenseful drama mm. or was it going to be some sort of dramedy comedy type of thing? Um, mm. Yeah, it, 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 I won't say I hated it. I, I won't say I loved it. I'll, I'll just say it was okay. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's just that bit of thing saying, going, well, I'm, I'm not particularly thrilled about revisiting it. And I think some people, and, and personally, I think you, you, Tom, are reading more into some supposed layers there that I, I don't think are really there. It, it was all pretty much there on the screen or on the page okay. to, to say that it was nuanced or layered. I, I don't know, just... Honestly, all right. You know, know. We, we have six weeks left. We'll see what goes on. I, I like the crack. I like the this talk of the silence. I oh, it's really interesting. Um, I, no, I, I wonder. I might need to rewatch it. But I wonder if that's got some. Does that is that not referenced in Utopia? We ran from the silence. We ran from the darkness. Could be. Could be. Yeah. One of the other things about this is that things really are not what they seem, which seems to be a recurring theme in this uh, in the season so far i.e the thing i'm thinking specifically of is when we think you know as an audience when we think that they are vampires there's a scene where the countess is hydrating and we think oh yeah she's a vampire it's a cup full of blood but again as soon as you realize actually no she's a fish she's actually hydrating that's probably water it puts a whole mm. different complexion on things and i think that's and i do believe that's quite a, quite an important point uh, i.e things not being what they seem what story do you believe and the idea about um time being rewritten if i'm if i go right out into left field i wonder if we're not being prepared for a quite fundamental rewriting of something we take for granted in Doctor Who. There is something very important that needs addressing before we get too much further in Doctor Who history and canon. I think, you know, I won't insult you by telling you what that is, but I think we might be being prepared for it, to be honest. Just what could it be? Please send in your thoughts to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com about your thoughts on Vampires of Venice and anything else, really. Uh, We'd love to feature your MP3 feedback in our fan reaction episode uh, later in the week. All right, Tom, well, from Fishmen to Bullmen, we'll be back after this short little uh, interlude. We're going to be reviewing the uh, recently released box set from To Entertain, the Myths and Legends release. We've had a look recently at the uh, box set DVD release of uh, three of the stories from the classic era of Doctor Who, all with a sort of mythological, ancient type of feel. It's, it's in the Myths and Legends box set, and the three stories that are in this box set are The Time Monster, Horns of Nymon, and Underworld. At last, Kronos, the tide has come. We call it a tree. Tree of the end of the world. Is it Atlantis? Oh, you know, the Minotaur. It's only a legend, though. Oh, that's just a myth. Myths often have a grain of truth in them, if you know where to look. I suppose that's how legends are made. Are you trying to tell us that the classical gods are real? Power drawn from the distant stars themselves. Time ships of the gods. Yes, I'm a time lord. The gods use us for their sport. Not just danger to our world, but to the entire created universe. <laughs> I am the master. Lord of time, I come as an emissary from the god. He is the very bearing of a god. It's as though something had sucked the life force out of it and left just a husk. The piece of when he was carrying something much more important than the wristband. Time eaters. Kronos is one of these creatures. The most fearsome of the lot. You shall die. Who did you see? Answer me. Kronos! Solon Empire will be born. <laughs> 
Only one thing stands between me and complete power. Over the universe itself. Now, where's Romana? Turn back! The Nymon waits for no man! He's one of them. Kill him! Kronos is coming. The more cynical among us might say, well, this is a way of getting three slightly unpopular stories out and getting people to buy them all at once so they don't have to release them individually. And the more cynical among us might say, well, people will buy anything that's in a box set. Because these stories are often regarded within fandom and, and, and I think by the wider general public as stories that really aren't that good. Now, in some cases, it's, this is a horribly unjustified comment, but in the majority of cases, it, it's pretty bang on because um, we, we see here in these three stories a, a fantastic mixture of mythological elements, Greek myth, ancient uh, themes wrapped up in the, the, the horribly underfunded BBC budget that Doctor Who had. But critically, lit by the sort of foreign imagination that guaranteed that the show would live for 45 years. I see where you're coming from. I know there, there are people call this the bottom of the barrel box set. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, yeah, like, like I said, the, these, these stories really aren't highly regarded. They're often showcased as, as stories that show what a bad era that, that the uh, Graham Williams era is, show the, you know, the wobbly sets, the overacting, the, the <gasps> brightly lit uh, stages, all that sort of nonsense. Right. Um, and, and, and they're often shown as stories that show where Doctor Who's ambition exceeded the money they had in their wallet. Um, which, mm. which is kind of unfortunate because Doctor Who has the scope to really d deliver these stories in a fantastic way, yeah. but it really needs people behind the scenes with the vision and the genius to, to make those ambitious ideas into ambitious vision. Mm. I hear what you're saying. Okay, I've got to ask that. I should confess, I'd heard from fandom about uh, the first story in the box set, The Time Monster, uh, and I'd been warned, oh, it's rubbish, it's really, really bad. I have a, I definitely have an opinion about it. What did you make of it? <clears throat> Time Monster is an, an incredibly mixed bag. Um, it's a six-episode story, which in some people's eyes can often be the, the first nail in its critical coffin. It suffers from some outrageous, mind-blowing padding. I think the bit in episode three where the Doctor gets a few household implements and makes something that uh, blocks the uh, Master's fiendish device... That basically takes up five minutes of screen time and doesn't advance the plot one centimetre. And then I think we've got episode, was it uh, four or something like that, which has the Doctor and the Master teleconferencing in, in their TARDISes, jeering at each other for a whole episode. And that doesn't advance the plot one single centimetre. It, it's got some fantastic ideas in there because the uh, Master is trying to harness this I suppose, Atlantean technology mm. to summon forth the interdimensional beast, the Chronovore, mm. which for some unspecified reason will, will help him gain universal domination, although that's never really made clear. It's a story that I think would have definitely benefited by being two or three episodes shorter. Well, it's interesting. I think within fandom, there's, um, I'd heard that there is a, uh, an opinion that any story that deals with time travel is slightly less than any good. But I've got to be honest, I went to this with a cleat with having not seen it before, with an open mind, and I thought it was really, really good. I sat and watched it with someone who has only really seen the new series, and they absolutely bought the fact that John Pertwee was the Doctor. There's that great scene, I think it's in episode five or six, where he's for the first time describing his childhood on Gallifrey, which 
you know, we don't, we don't hear or see that again until Gridlock. You know, he starts talking about the way he was as a child, which is tremendously important. Um, there are allusions to the relationship between the Doctor and the Master, which again we don't really see until the end of uh, season three, and we get a bit more of it in season four. Um, plus, the thing that which really got me is I never quite got. This whole thing that that men of a certain age have about uh, Joe Grant and the Third Doctor or Katie Manning, I, I, I thought, yeah, she's all right, but she's not all that. In episode one of this, I, I totally get it. She is young, she's pretty, she is incredibly sexy, and the relationship between her and the Third Doctor, okay, it's it's unique, absolutely unique. Um, and for anybody that thought, oh yeah, this whole um, doc, Doctor and companion thing where they're really, really close verging on, verging on intimate is an invention of Russell T. Davis. Really needs yeah. to say episode one yeah. of The Time Monster because it's been there for so many years. Um, yeah, okay, fair, you know, fair, fair enough. Some of the effects um, leave a little bit to be desired. But for me, the story explained a lot. You really hit that point right on the head there, um, Tom, because for, for all its failings, Time Monster is one of those stories that has so many elements of what we consider to be modern Doctor Who or, or, or even classic Doctor Who. It's just a shame that it's wrapped mm-hmm. up in this horribly padded and quite awful story. The Time Monster is the first story that really drives home the point that the TARDIS travels in the vortex. The Time Monster is the first story yeah. that talks about the TARDIS being telepathic and almost alive in yep. a certain sense, and even Bessie come to that. And as you said before, it, it's the first real mention of the Doctor's home planet in terms of where he lived when he was young, and that was also explored again in Planet of Spiders at the end of Pertwee's run and also in yeah, the yeah. modern series as well. It's it's all one big tapestry, really. So Time yeah. Monster has all these fantastic elements there that many fans now take for granted with regards to Doctor Who. I mean, it's like the deadly assassin of the John Pertwee hmm. era. Um, but it's just not as good. I like that this this one story explained a lot, of, well, almost the, the entire Third Doctor's era to me. Uh, I never quite got Unit, but once I watched The Time Monster, I saw it for what it was. Um, the, you know, the Time Monster is Unit actually being effective. It's Benton being effective. It's the Brigadier being the Brigadier. It's Bessie being a supercar, because that's the first time I saw Bessie being anything other than just like a prop. It's Benton be being effective. Um, it's unit being effective. Yeah. Unit gets stuck in a time eddy for an episode and a half. Benton spends an episode and a half in a nappy. Um, it, it's he no, does he so. <laughs> Thank you very much. Have, have you even watched this story? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But he also, but he, but he also thinks for himself. He actually, you know, he, he does try and push the plot along a little bit. He, he's a bit of an action hero. Um, which which is more than I've ever seen seen him being, truth be told. Um, don't get me wrong; I see that there are holes in it. Um, you know, not least the design of the monster, which is oh, a little bit to be, God, a bit to yes. be desired. Um, the, I think the explanation being it was supposed to be like a fluttering bird, but even that, um, I, it, I, watched, I watched it with um, some surprisingly engaged ten year olds actually, uh, and they immediately said, "Well, that's like the Reapers in Father's Day, isn't it?" So it it it, it, it works if you're willing to just. See it, see it like through the eyes of a child. It, it's kind of there. Don't get me wrong. I can see the, I can see where the problems are. But first pass, if I'm totally honest, I really enjoyed it. I've got to be honest. If, if the general thing in fandom is it's pants, I don't agree. I think well, it's really good. while we're talking about loads of bull and minotaurs, let's let's skip talking about underworld just for the moment and and jump beyond that to to horns of Nymon, which which is the other story in in this much lauded box set that. Um, features the Minotaur, although in this case it's really, really even more driving home the whole thing of reimagining or retelling an ancient myth. 
in a modern or even a futuristic context because rather than the Minotaur, we have the Naimon and many of the characters in this story are renamed characters from Greek mythology. Is, it, is this Doctor Who or is it the Romana adventure? I don't know. This one? Romana really is the Doctor in, in this story and if you ever get a chance to uh, buy the About Time books from Mad Norwegian Press, um, they're a fantastic read. Buy them now, right now. Um, they they really drive home the point in that that this really is the Romana show in in this particular story. She she gets her own sonic screwdriver. She gets her own companions that ask inane questions, um, and she's pretty much the one that solves or is the solution to the problem at the end of the story. The Doctor by this point is like comedy relief in his own show. There isn't many things I I can say about Horns of Nymon that that really make me want to go and watch it again. It, it was a chore to go and re-watch it again for this review. Um, it, it was great to see it again, but it just merely reconfirmed to me just, just, just what a poor story this is, where um, in the death throes of the Graham Williams era, in fact, this is the last story, I suppose, in, in all reality for the Graham Williams era because the next story, Sharda, was cancelled. By this point, we, we have a production team that doesn't really seem to care about what's going up up on screen. Um, we're, we're, we're there for the Tom Baker comedy half hour, and that's it. Well, all right. So, do you know, um, I remember this this show lives in my heart as something quite special because it's the one, it's one of the very first that I properly remember uh, in hindsight and, um, with you know, from where we are in time now. I look at it and I see the problems. But... The minute Graham Crowden um, kicked in with, oh, Doctor! You I was made back to being me remember it was Graham ace. Crowden. My God. I, mean, I know that's the way his character was written, but oh my hmm. goodness. Surely, sure, you know when sh- this was originally surely Graham gone. and Tom are competing with each other for, for the biggest amount of overacting oh, yeah. during these four episodes. Um, I mean, oh, yeah. he, he's the only villain Doctor Who that's that dies with a smile on his face. He thought it was a take. He didn't realise. <laughs> what I've... He didn't realise it was a the take. The version I've heard is that they ran out of time so badly they could only do one take on his death scene and he corpsed it so badly mm-hmm. that they had to use it. So that's that's, that's the version mm-hmm. I've heard. But anyway, in any case, what, what we see <laughs> on screen is just the culmination of four episodes of incredibly over-the-top Graham crowd and acting. Oh, do you know what? Maybe this might put it in context a little bit. When this was originally broadcast at Christmas time, so if we if we accept that it's the Doctor Who I Christmas know. panto, it becomes a little bit easier to stomach. I've I've heard this theory before. <laughs> oh, the production team wanted to do their own panto. Um, no, that 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 mm. doesn't wash with me. I'm afraid. No, sorry. But you know, the, the other important thing though is that it is it does mark very much the end of an era because by that point, Tom Baker was out of control. Um, and you're right; it's the la- it's the last time that we that we see the Tom Baker show before the whole thing is reined in by John Nathan Turner the following season. And it is the end of an era. It's the end of um, the Technicolor Doctor. It's the end of that guy that's playing the universe like a pinball machine. It's the end of the boggle-eyed man, um, which for some people couldn't come soon enough. I mean, I remember when the Leisure Hive opened, you could feel that it was sombre. And I don't think we ever saw the boggle-eyed man no. again, until, no. f- except, for, except for very briefly in um, State of Decay. But yeah, it's the end of an era. And... As a child, it was it was behaving like a kids' show. It really was behaving like a kids' show. Tom Baker was out of control, but for what it was, and because it reminds me of being so young <laughs> and a time that is long since past, I love it for that because it's a nostalgia piece. 
apparently Graham Crown was going to play the Doctor at one point, and you could see that had he done so, it might have been a, a similar characterization to Tom Baker. But yeah, I, do, do you know what? I see why people have a, have a downer on the Nymon, because they, you could get away from them at a brisk run. Um, but I, the thing that stuck out to me was that it's got the same plot as Planet of the Dead. Okay. Well, or a similar one. That's another nail in its coffin. Then, thank you for adding to that, Tom. Very, thank you very much. Horns of Diamond doesn't do it for me. You you can't excuse it by saying it's a panto, which I don't think it was ever designed as. Um, Sure, Graham Crowden's part is meant to be over the top, but he redefines that particular acronym um, to to incredible excess. Tom Tom Baker's just along for the ride. Because he's yeah. he's he's yeah. totally yeah. run roughshod over Graham Williams for the past three years, um, with 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 his insane mm. demands, you know, talking cabbages for companions and stuff like that. Um, it, it's <laughs> n- not very good, really. Which 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 kind of tarnishes, I suppose, the the other DVD in this set from from earlier in the Graham Williams era and and earlier in the Tom Baker reign, um, Underworld, which sees Tom Baker and his companion, Leela. This is the story that's often very highly derided because once they get past the first episode, it's pretty much CSO ahoy for the entire rest of the story. And it's it's often put down merely because it, it just looks so terrible. You're right. It's not as pleasant to look at as say uh, the green death or parts of the invisible enemy but it was an it was an emerging technology um i've got to be honest this is on the edge of my memory for the very first time round, and i like the catchphrase element of it the quest is the quest i like the um allegory i like the retelling of the story but Mm. that's about it there's not a huge amount going on here it's and you know well we mentioned the green death once already um there's a i think at the very end where you've got an insane computer that's being talked to by the doctor and dismissed wearing that the same headphone prop as the green death um no i'm not mad keen on it as i say this whole box set could be the business as usual box set and Underworld, I think, is very much of its time. Uh, again, changing perceptions show me how incredibly uh, diverting Louise Jameson was in her youth mm, in the seventies. Mm. Um, so you know, so once again, that whole thing you know, when people say, "Oh yeah, Doctor Who's being sexed up," no, it's not. It's been mm. like that forever. It yes. really has. But yeah, I, I found it hard to find things to like in Underworld. It was a bit more than undead in places, but yeah, it, you know, it's a really difficult story to to get something out of, really, because. The first episode, I think, contains all the real nuggets that this story has to offer. It, it's got the fantastic minions, and we learn a bit of the backstory about the mm. Time Lords and about their why they actually went down the path of non-intervention with other races. It was a result of their disastrous dealing with the minions. It, mm. It's got some fantastic stuff in there, and that's what had my kids talking about it a lot. All the stuff about the Time Lords being involved with the minions, you know, way back when. The rest mm. of the story is running around with loincloth people looking very sad in incredibly bad CSO'd caves because they thought, well, let's save a yeah. bit of money, send a film crew down to film some caves and CSO the last three episodes. And it just doesn't work. Yeah. I, 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 even I can't find too much to, to celebrate in there. But maybe there's a link forward into Mordrin Undead. That's the most I can think of. But it, it's not bad, but there are definitely better Doctor Who stories, it must be said. Myths and legends, I think we can summarise it. There are three stories in there that, while the stories themselves aren't particularly good, um, there's so many elements of them that form part of what we now believe is our core Doctor Who beliefs. Um, non-intervention, 
TARDIS is travelling in the vortex, telepathic circuits, the TARDIS being alive, um, all those sort of things are in these three stories and, and they are all linked in a certain way because they've got these wonderful retellings or reimaginings of mythological stories like um, Jason and the Golden Fleece, which which forms the whole underworld story, for example. Um, there's, there's some fantastic ideas in these stories, but that they just weren't realised properly. I think you're right. You know, the thing to do is maybe give it a couple of months, wait till the price drops um, on whichever is your preferred online uh, DVD ordering mechanism and buy it. You know, just wait, wait for the price to come down and have it because there's, some, there's something to entertain you on a, on a rainy <laughs> afternoon in here. Definitely. So in other words, wait till they're cheap because they're not worth any more money than that. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, it's one of those things. The people who are, you know, I am amongst them. The people who are going to buy that box set already have already bought it. And like I said, yes, I'm one of them. So. Yes, true. <laughs> yes. For our sins, we, we already have it. So, yes, anyway. All right. Well, it, it's out now. Myths and Legends has, uh, I think, been out for probably close to two months now anyway. We're a little bit behind here at uh, at the old DWP caravan. But uh, please check it out. Um, certainly worthwhile to have a look at them and, you know, to, to complete gaps in your Doctor Who knowledge. Because there's just so much in them that yeah. uh, forms part of what Doctor Who is today. You know, there's so much in them and there's been so much in this episode as well. Wow. wow. That might be it for another episode of the Doctor Who Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Get all that MP3 feedback into the normal address, feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. I'm sure Marty will tell you in a few minutes uh, where you can get in touch with us in other ways, on Twitter and Facebook and all those sort of exciting places. But, uh, yeah, wow. Thanks for joining us, guys. We'll be back in a couple of days with a very exciting interview with a few big finish bods and our review of a couple of exciting uh, big finish audios. So look forward to your company then, hey? Bye-bye. Take it easy. Bye. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.